Thank you for joining the Relief from Grief podcast by Mrs. Miriam Ribiet and Hevra Lomde Mishnah. Our goal is to help you find the chizuk you may need and the comfort of knowing that you are not alone. To sponsor an episode, visit hevralomdemishnah.org forward slash podcast and bring comfort to listeners like you. It's incredible that I have been doing this podcast for over a year already. Um, I never thought that it would really take off the way it did. Baruch Hashem, the feedback that I get is really, really phenomenal. And I feel grateful that I am able to help people with their pain. Um, so today we have a year in review, short clips of some of, or I shouldn't say some, all the speakers in the past year. And um, I hope you enjoy it. Today's podcast is sponsored by Eloy Nishmas Avraham Yitzchak. Ben Chaim Tzvi, his neshama should have an aliyah, and we do offer sponsorship opportunities. You can email me at merbiat at chavrolamdemishnah.org or go to the website chavrolamdemishnah.org. Thank you so much for listening. Mr. Mayor Silverstein lost a few very close friends. When this kind of solidified for me, I was in graduate school and I was we were actually taking a course on grief and bereavement and the professor, she was like an expert in grief and bereavement. She actually had, had run massive studies after 9-11 on firefighters and um, all the first responders. And she was running this massive study and she was telling us all about the results of what they're seeing, what they're looking at. Um, and she told everybody, she said, okay, everybody stand up and come to the center of the room, middle of the room. And she put down a piece of tape on the floor, a massive piece of tape. Everybody stand inside the tape. Um, everybody stood inside this big tape. And she said, anybody who's ever lost um, a grandparent, please step out. Right? And anybody who's ever lost a parent, please step out. Anybody who's ever lost a child, please step out. And she goes down this list of, of, of losses, right? And she's going and going and going. And less and less people are obviously still in the middle. And she basically gets to the end of the list and like, I'm the only person left inside by myself. Because at that moment in time where I was, I never lost a grandparent, right? All my grandparents were alive. I mean, I had a grandfather with Nifter way before I was ever born. I didn't experience that loss. Right. All my grandparents were Baruch Hashem still alive. My parents were Baruch Hashem still alive. My siblings were all Baruch Hashem still alive. Um, children, yeah, I, I never experienced any direct loss. And the professor was shocked. It's like, how's that how's that even possible? Um, and I said, it's true. I said, I said, but I, I'll be honest, I was standing in the middle of that of that circle, kind of alone. I said, I, I don't feel that I, I didn't experience loss. I said, I think I've experienced a tremendous amount of loss. And people that really matter to me and matter to, to who I was. But it's none of the people that you listed. And it's none of those connections. And it was like a very, it was a significant moment. And, and she, she even like realized and she said, you know, you're right. She said, there's, a, there's another person. There are other people I need to put on this list. Wow. The next time I, and like that, I, I say this was years ago. And I remember it like it was yesterday because it was, such a visual active thing that she did with everybody. And I was literally the only one standing 
And it, it and was an impact. And you said also before that, I'm assuming this is what you're referring to, the story, and you said that also left you like, feeling very like lonely. Very lonely. Because it was lonely and like, it was, you're not, almost like you're not normal for feeling lost. Like you're, right. everyone else has experienced loss and you're a weirdo, like you never experienced loss. Right. So that's, that, that was, that was a, a moment that I remember saying, but no, it's not true. I did, I did experience loss. Mrs. Sherry Mandel lost her son, Kobe, to terrorists and founded the Kobe Mandel Foundation. People really want to change. And sometimes when you have trauma, and or it's a terrible loss. And you have, like for me, I can say, I had so much support that I was able to like begin again. And and in fact, some rabbi said to me, it's like there's a there's there are people who are reborn in life. You know, you don't have it like Tahiyat team doesn't just happen to dead people. It can happen to people who are alive. And because it was like for all of us in my family, our, our life stopped. That life was over. That was, there was no going back to who we were. Right. But it's interesting because on the one hand, you say, you know, and I know that you made the whole Kobe Mandel um, organization and everything, but you still say that you, like you really had to grieve who you were before. Yeah. Well, I didn't really grieve who I was before. I just, I couldn't return to her because she wasn't like large enough or wise enough to know how to deal with what had happened. Like, I think that there, you know, the other me was there waiting, but um, it was kind of, she was hidden. And in order for that other person out somehow i'm not saying there had to be a tragedy because hopefully people can do it without a tragedy but you know something grew that that was different than what was there before it's like i was reading about like the nistar and the galui and sometimes the soul somehow is in hiding and in order for it to be revealed it has to have some sort of nisayanot, some sort of trial. Right. I mean, I don't recommend this. Right. <laughs> we wish we could all make the changes without the tragedies, but unfortunately, it's the tragedies that really shake us up. <laughs> right. But some people can do it with, they do do it without, you know, and I think there is a way to do it through happiness also. Mrs. Toby Klein lost her father when she was just a baby. She had no memories of him and longed to find out who he really was. Who I am. And that's the piece that I never got from anyone. Not my grandparents and not my aunts, which as I got older and I wanted information, I wanted like something that I can hold on to. They couldn't give that to me. Nothing. Like not one piece? Nothing. Wow. <clears throat> whatever, whatever I know is either from my mother that she shared with me and very disconnected memories, um, her own subjective memories, I should say. Um, my aunt, my mother's sister shared a lot of memories with me. Really just other people. But I mean, what I did get from my aunt was how much my father loved me. And which I, I believe that. Um, interestingly, we actually had, we found um, one of the Super 8 movies. So we actually found a movie film 
of my father um, saying Kriya Shema with me, which is something that I treasure. He's actually um, saying Kriya Shema and kissing them. This is a very short little clip. Wow. Yeah, so I have that memory to hold on to that, like actual memory that's real. And there's sound, you hear his voice. And there's sound, yes, I hear his voice. So wow. it's, it's actually incredible. Yeah, it's it's something that's beautiful. But I didn't, I, I don't have, I, I especially, and, and the crazy thing is as I get older and my children got older and now my grandchildren, I want so badly to know like, who was he? Where in my family is his legacy? Who am I seeing that is... Rabbi Aaron Litwin lost his father when he was 17 years old. He co-founded an organization in England called Nakimi, an organization for children who lost a parent. You know, I'm remembering now that after my father was nifter, I wrote for the, for a whole year every week of, of art on, on Chizuk and Amun, and I used to mail it out at the time. It was post snail mail, you know. I used to post it out to a whole list of people, and it was something that gave me a Chizuk. I felt that I had the responsibility to find a lot of Chizuk, so hopefully it would give me some Chizuk at the time. But I'd like to think that when I'm with people, I'm not using that as a way of dealing with my grief. But if you ask if it does bring up grief, absolutely it does. And it needs processing. And I'm not, I have no problem to say to someone, you know, while I'm with them and say, you know, that's choking me up. And I'm thinking of, I think as long as you're being real and aware and honest, there's the, right. the, then that's okay. I just had an interesting experience where Rabbi Zachary Wallerstein, right? Do you know him? Is he known in England? <laughs> so, yeah, for sure. Rabbi Wallerstein was was known, oh, Rabbi Wallerstein was a giant and I, I had the privilege to hear him, you know, live on occasion. Mrs. Libby Kraft is the daughter of beloved pediatrician, Dr. Elliot Samet, who passed away after contracting COVID. So let me ask you like this. I know that I know that you said before how you, you know, you spoke to your family a lot. You got together on Zoom calls and everything. But what about in general, did you feel like the whole the whole thing was very public? Public in what way? Public because my father was a well-known individual? Yes. Right. I know there was a lot of articles written about him and I know that it was like a big thing. So, you know, I think I took comfort in the fact that people were reading about and hearing about my father because like my father was this like believable person to me. Like, you know, he was everything to me and to my family. So you just want to share, like, do you know what I lost? Like, do you even have an idea what I lost? And the fact that, you know, it was something that people were, you know, there were articles written. I wanted people to know who my father was and I wanted them to realize what an incredible person he was and what he meant to me. I would say that not all the articles really captured so much, you know, it's kind of like you read it and nodded along with it and was like, but there was so much more. Right. You don't even know, you don't even know the half of it. Totally. But actually, there was one article that was published in the Hamodia that my sisters and I wrote together with the input of my brothers. My mother was asked to write an article and she passed it along to my sisters and I. It was shortly after my father died. I think we we did it somewhere. I think it was about like near the Shloshim that we submitted it. It was probably like the worst. We, we joked that this was like the worst homework assignment my mother ever, ever gave to us to do because it was incredibly painful and to write and to be able to just like think and put into words who my father was, what he meant to us, what we wanted to share with other people. But you know, after the fact, after we we completed it, we realized like how therapeutic it was for us. Right. And perhaps if we would have had that experience of sitting together at Shiva 
I don't know, maybe when you sit and you talk and you like pick apart and you, you know, delve into different things and memories and whatnot, you, you have that experience. I don't know, but this working on this article and just really like putting so much thought and feeling and crying through it and working on it together, it was definitely a therapeutic process for us. Mrs. Judy Landman lost her father when she was just a baby. She runs Blinks, the Baltimore branch of Blinks, an organization for children that lost a parent. I asked again, my rub, that's Torah. I said, it bothered me. I said, here, my son is named after him. My father wasn't from. And he said to me, first of all, Kibbutz Aveim, there is no issue. You don't have to worry how your child, you're doing a Kibbutz Aveim. It's not an issue for your father. Maybe for grandfather, different. But he said he was an Erel and then slowly over the years through either my son, who's named after my father, Yaakov Mordechai, he would eat at my cousin's house when he was a bacher. And he would eat at my cousin's children's house in Eretzron. And they knew the stories. They knew the stories about my father. And he would tell me all these great stories, how Zaidi was so careful about my machonim in the camps, how Zaidi was so careful about tefillin. Al-Zaidi was such a chassidah shiyad, he would sing the song. Recently, we just found out how my father, he would be the one to serve the grape juice and the fish. I have no idea what that means. If anyone who's listening knows what that means in the Tish world, please tell me. So oh, <laughs> he was that, he was that bacher. He actually was Mishamish the Klosenberger Rebbe after the war. And he started off there and then he transferred to Neri Israel. But my cousin said, Judy, and at a wedding, the most recent wedding, she said, Judy, she goes, he kept the family together. I'm like, what are you talking about? She's like, he was the firmest one of us all. I was like, what? Mrs. Starlisa Scheinberg is a speaker in Detroit. She shares her journey of loss following the death of her father. Maybe two weeks after the Shloshim in Eretzistral, and he was, he was 20, and he was going through a lot, so he like called me every day. And again, no boundaries. I didn't know how to say like, oh, I have seven, six kids and, and I'm expecting and I'm falling apart. And so this was your youngest brother, your youngest brother. Was my 20? youngest brother was 20 at the time. My two younger brothers were 25 and 20. And he went to Artistral and he, like, no, everyone thought he was Hasidish, like why he has a beard. You know, like no one knew, like he's an Avilas for so his father. Hard. And he said, like, he said, he went for Lagba Omer to Rabbi Shon Bar Yochai. And he said, I had nowhere to be because I was an Avil, so I couldn't hear the music or, you know, it was a very confusing time for him. And I was talking to him and I mentioned something about like reading a book about Avas Chesed. And he said, wait, wait, back up. What, what are you doing? You're reading a book about Avas Chesed? He goes, why are you reading a book about Avas Chesed? I'm like, I don't know. I try to read a little bit of a safer every single day. And the one I'm reading right now is Charliza. You have no Amuna. Why would you read a book about Avas Chesed? I'm like, I have Amuna. What are you telling me? I don't have Amuna for him. He's like, no, you don't. He goes, okay, you have like Amuna that you like still buy kosher food and still keep Shabbos. He's like, but you davened for 18 months for something and you poured out your heart to Hashem and you begged and you cried and you screamed and you bargained and you, and Hashem said no. And you can't read a book about Abbas Chesed right now. Like you need to read a book about Amuna because you need to be honest that your relationship took a hit and you need to repair it. And I felt like all of a sudden, like, oh, he's right. Like, he's he's right. That's why I'm, this book is not going in. Like, I'm just, like, going through the motions. I'm like, so I went and I bought two books. Rav Shem Shem Pinkus had a book on Amuna and a book on Bitachon. And for the next 18 months, that's all I read. I only read. And that actually, that's what I was telling you before, that became my passion. Like, I teach three Amunavads now, like, because I really think, like, it was like my house burned down and I didn't have fire insurance, you know, like. I, I really believe that 
that we have so much that our amuna is going to be tested in life that if we don't, if we don't at least start learning, like I was teaching one of the Amunavats for three years and then Corona broke out and my husband read me the first page of Shar Tachon and Rabbeinu Yonah. And I was like, after three years of teaching Amuna, I'm at zero. <laughs> like, but at least I wasn't at negative 736. You know what I mean? <laughs> so we really, we really need, Hashem really is Elam in this world. He's really hidden and, and he tests us. And especially in America, I find that we buy lock, stock and barrel, the American belief in life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. And that the reason we're here is to just be fed peeled grapes by somebody who's fanning us when she's finished peeling our grapes. And like, and it's a really big like jolt when, when suddenly our life is hijacked from us and we're like on a different train. And and that train is filled with a lot scarier things than the one we were on. And we just like some, that's what I mean that like, we're afraid to look at pain. We just want to like go to that train. We're just trying to constantly get back to the original train we were on. And like, until we accept like, no mom a lot that that was, I don't even know what that train was. I'm not even sure if anyone's still on that train, but it's not your train. Like this is your train and you need to stay on this train and, and look out the window. And we're afraid because what's out the window is petrifying. Mrs. Lori Palatnik is a noted speaker and author she wrote the book, Remember My Soul, What to Do in Memory of a Loved One, exploring the topic of Jewish mourning. Did you ever feel an Neshama? I don't know if you lost your parents or not, but I don't know if it's too personal. We could skip. <laughs> I'm very, I'm happy to share it. It's actually in about 10 days is my father's third yard site. Oh. My father passed away three years ago. And you know, it's interesting because I wrote this book and I speak about soul in the afterlife and I talk about Shiva and the stupid things people say at a Shiva and how to comfort a mourner. And once you're on the other side and you are actually the mourner, boy, boy, <laughs> does it really hit home. It really, really hits home. But in terms of the terms of feeling a person's soul, I've never shared this before, but during the Shabbos, the Shabbat of the Shiva itself, and we sat Shiva in Toronto, where my where I'm from and where my, my parents live. And during Shabbat, like my mother was living in an assisted living, so we couldn't stay there. So we all went to different friends for Shabbat. And I went to, I was actually at a home of a friend who was out of town. And she gave me her home. And I was there with my husband and my son. And I lit candles for Shabbos. And I glance over. And my father was on the couch. Wow. Okay. I know it sounds wild. No. And I was like, I was like, took my breath away. My father was on the couch and he was sitting just like my father sat, like with his leg crossed over, you know, like how Mm -hmm. a man like, you know, crosses his legs over and his arm was on the top of the couch. You know what I mean? Like how they, just like my father used to sit. Right. And I, I, I turned to my son and I said, Zadie's here. Because mm-hmm. what? <laughs> I said, Zadie's here. So it was so heavy. So my husband came home from shul and we sat down. It was me, my husband, and my son. And I kept looking over and my father was just sitting there, just watching us have Shabbos. You he mean he was there for a long for time? He was there the whole night, like the whole during the dinner. And then in the morning, he was not there in the morning. And during that, when I went to sleep, I told him that he should go visit the other kids, like go visit my siblings. And I asked my siblings after Shabbos, did, did that, you know, 
did you like dream about him or did you see him or whatever? And they said, no, they, that they hadn't. And then many, many months went by. He passed away in January. And then Arab Yom Kippur of that year, he came to me in a dream. Now, there's a difference between dreaming about somebody or somebody comes to you in a dream. Do you understand the difference? I sure do. You want to explain okay, it just so, for, the, uh, for the listeners? Well, then you dream about people. And only one other time did I dream about my father. It was a kind of a goofy dream. He was inside a dream. There was a whole story going on. But this was completely, completely different. It was unbelievably vivid and real. And th this is how the dream went. So I was in Toronto in my dream, looking for my childhood home, the home that we all grew up in. Okay, so I'm looking for my childhood home and I can't find it. I'm in the neighborhood, I can't find it. And somebody said, oh, you're looking for your house? Do you have to, they built a mall. And if you go through that mall, then you'll come to your house. So I go through this mall and I come and I'm in my childhood home. And I'm in my parents' bedroom. And my father came out of the closet and he was the father of my youth. Wow. He was the father of, of my youth. He was young. He was vibrant. And he was so happy. He did not say a word. He came, walked over to me, and he hugged me. And then I woke up. Wow. And I was filled from head to toe with unbelievable nechama, unbelievable comfort. Yeah. And I knew that my father had come to me, Erev Yom Kippur, to tell me that he's okay. Mrs. Esti Rothstein gave birth to premature twins. Her daughter survived, but her son did not. So, was your husband like like a little bit upset to use his father's name, knowing that that means so he's funny. not going to have any? It's so funny because actually I was the one that had a harder time. Yeah. And the reason why is because I knew that every single one of my husband's siblings will also be having a Yosef late, right? Because it's their father also. And I and we're the oldest and. And at that, we were the only one who had a boy then. And I remember being nervous, but I was like, hey, if Rav Shmuel says something, you do it. You listen to the gadolim. My father was telling me once, like, you know, you were allowed to say your feelings and discuss it. I'm like, I didn't know I should do that. But it was the right, you know, I, I have no regrets. But at that time, it was a little bit like, I'm like, really, that's what we should do? But interestingly enough, we're the only one who calls him Yassi. Everyone else either calls them Yosef Leib or Yosef or once called Menachem Yosef. They added the name Menachem. So everyone, nobody calls their son Yassi, but every family has a uh, Yosef Leib. Right. It's hard. What, what What's actually interesting is my husband's brother made a bar mitzvah. Well, actually, first he made a pidyon ben. We made a pidyon ben too, because he was born naturally. We made that a pidyon ben. Had a name. <laughs> he didn't have a name ben. Right. Right. Exactly. So we had a beautiful pidyon ben. I mean, he wasn't there, but. You know, it was a regular, you know, we invited everyone, like it was beautiful. And, but, you know, after he passed away, like it was just swept under the rug by some people. And when my brother-in-law had a boy and made a Pidina Ben, somebody stood up and said, this is the first Pidina Ben on the side of the family. And I cannot tell you how hurt I was. Excuse me. My son had a Pidina Ben two years before. But Why did you say that? I don't think he even remembered. I really don't think he remembered. And it was someone, you know, on that side of the family. And I asked my husband, like, go over and tell him. My husband's like, why? Then he'll feel bad. Like, just because it's our pain 
And yeah, you have every right to be painful, pained and hurt. It already happened. Like what, what's it going to do? Stand up and be like, just joking. It was really the second one, you know, (laughs) it's not going to be fixed and it's just going to hurt the person as well. So my husband's a very nice person. I'm not as nice. I would have said something, but you know, but he had a point, (laughs) you know, so those types of things were very hurtful to me. Now, obviously I never made a bar mitzvah, but when this same baby became bar mitzvah, it was the first bar mitzvah on my husband's side of the family, his immediate family, but I would have made the first bar mitzvah. And it was so hard. We lived, we actually lived in Indianapolis, Indiana then. Sorry, we lived in Denver. We we lived in Indianapolis, then in Denver. And I guess by his bar mitzvah, we already lived in Denver. And I, we didn't come in for bar mitzvahs. So it was just too expensive. So we came in for weddings and things like that. And I was so relieved that I didn't have to come in because I don't think I would have handled sitting through that bar mitzvah. Mr. Glenn Holman lost two children and started an organization called Mayrim for families that lost a child. Right, right. To recognize how little control we have in the world. So I think that is something, the, the byproduct of that is that commonly this is something to speak all the time, people feel an intense pressure to move on. So we tolerated you to be in a period of grief like for this long. We were even, you know, the, the, the outside world is saying, I think there's a message that says like, you know, we were really nice. We gave you even a couple of extra weeks, but right. it's, it's it's time, right? We, right. <laughs> and and some of that is comes from people, you know, I think from not the, the mourners, but from the, the observers, people who are observing them, who, who sometimes it's it's hard, right? It's hard. There's a very helpless feeling sometimes still to see someone who's experienced, you know, tragic loss and to feel like, you know, we can't control the world around us. And I think that can lead sometimes to inadvertently pressure to that is felt by the, the mourner that, you know, we got to move on. And that's something that's we talk about a lot. So what advice could you give to those people, to the friends of the people that went through loss that are watching their friends go through this and they're so helpless? Yeah. Like- yeah. Very common question. So I'll tell you, I, you know, I had this question recently. I'm just going to give you my Shiva system and then we'll move from there. So I tell people when they go to Shiva, because I get this question a lot, what's the most helpful way? So my system, it's a point system. It's it's not complex. Whenever you go into Shiva, you start with 100 points. You walk in the door. As a, if you Menachemavu, you start with 100 points. Everything you say, you lose points. If you say something really like, you know, and, and we hear it all the time, and I'm not going to get, you know, go down that path, but the most ludicrous, you know, sometimes hurtful things that people say, you know, you lose a lot of points, right? Imagine you say some of the crazy things that, that we hear, you know, you lose 50 points. And if you say smart, you know, you lose three points, right? So you come out with a 97. It's a great average, right? My kid comes, a, comes home with a test, a 97. And we're very, you know, that's a great score, right? I think, you know, the exception to that would be if you know the person who passed away, then I think that's the exception to share stories or to share something about, you know, an anecdote or or something you learned from them or something that makes you remember them. I think that's something that can, could have, you know, a really, you know, I say a positive effect, right? A meaningful effect. But outside of that, I think, especially when you're talking, you know, as I said, I'm, you know, I'm talking about child loss to a degree, you know, that in that circumstance, I think, you know, the less is more. I think as you move out of that, one thing is, you know, I've heard this before. I've heard some people say, and it's, it's tricky, right? You'll say, you know, don't say if there's anything you need. Right? Don't say that. I've heard that a lot of times. Yeah. I, I get that. 
right? There's also, I think sometimes there's too much of these, like this specific, <laughs> you know, being very specific, like it's okay, you know, if there's anything you need to say that, I think it could be even better is, so, you know, to give them a specific, to try to identify a specific need and offer that. We had somebody, I remember before, while Miriam was sick, this person did carpool for us every week. Really amazing. Every week, we, we, Miriam had been hospitalized for about four and a half months. It was a very time, very difficult time. And this person said, I just want you to know, you do not have carpool until, you know, you don't worry about carpool. And they took care of a certain carpool. So after they passed, after Miriam passed, I think the person, we said, okay, we're ready. They said, listen, I took your carpool. You're not worrying about carpool. I don't think we let them do it for the rest of the year, or they, though they offered. But that was a very specific thing that really went, went really far. That was something wow, so nice. helpful to us. Or it could be something like, can I take one of the kids out? Can I bring dinner? I remember people always bringing dinners to us during this period of time. So I think, you know, when when someone, Baruch Hashem, someone has a baby, dinners, 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 you know, says illness, dinners, dinners, dinners. When someone's two weeks after Shiva, it's like, okay, time to get, time to get back to business. Right. right? I think if someone says, you probably don't even need it, you could say something like that. <laughs> or I don't even know if it's necessary, but I, I want to take upon myself. Can I just bring you dinner for just for a couple of weeks, I just want to, Tuesday night, so you don't worry about dinner. Just Tuesday night, even if you want to cook something or or pizza night, I'm just letting you know, there'll be two pies of pizza at your house every Tuesday night, and you're not going to worry about it. And I want to hear another word about it. Rebetzin Feige Tversky is a beloved Rebetzin in Milwaukee and an accomplished writer. She lost a son-in-law, father of a large family, in a tragic accident. It's like, uh, you know, when Aaron Cohen lost his two sons, when they went into Kodesh HaKadoshim with an unbidden fire, and he experienced a lot of the, they were such exalted people. And his reaction to us was, the Torah tells of Ayidom Aaron, Aaron was silent. Aaron was silent. It was day of the Hanukkah's uh, Hamishka, and it was a, such a, a day of celebration. Celebration didn't stop, it went on. And Ayidom Aaron, Aaron was silent. Why could Aaron be silent? The only reason Aaron could be silent is because he probably did understand what you're asking. He did understand why young people, you know, would die. Why there are people, Mukabalim, who probably, you know, I once asked the Mukabal in Eretz Yisrael to try and that he should explain to me why suffering has to happen. And he, he said to me, he said, you know, that all of us live in a very little slice of time. We see, you know, our lives are so short and we only see what's happening right in front of us. It's what Rabbi Desla calls the keyhole perspective. Like when you look through a keyhole, you see only, what can you see? Very, very little. We don't see the whole picture. And if we would see the whole picture, we would appreciate why things happened. And he said to me, he said, you know what we don't appreciate is that all of us were here once before. We're all a Gilgal. We're all Gilgulim. And there is a lot of unfinished business from past Gilgulim. So when, when we look at and the people we've lost, we don't know what their lives were about in past Gilgulim. And in order to be able to get to eternity and to bask in the presence of the Rabbeinu Shleilam, there are certain things that had to happen. You know, what maybe passing away young was one of them. Maybe they lived a full life and then passed Gilgal and there was just a little something left over that they had to do in this world. And they come down to this world and they get it done. 
And now they're all set to go and to be in the presence of the Rabbani Shalom without any barriers. So if we would be able to see that whole picture, if we, if we had kind of, we were privy to the heavens and to the working of the heavens, and we can get a glimpse, just a momentary glimpse of what's going on there, we would be in a better position to, to be comforted. So he said to me, you're, you're not going to appreciate it and you're not going to understand because we just don't get that glimpse. We don't just don't have the keyhole is way too narrow and way too small for us to see the whole picture. But what we do know that when Mashiach comes, when Mashiach comes, all of us will know why it had to be the way it had to be. But, but until then, for us simple folk, we just have to accept that on faith, that there is reason. It's one thing we know for sure is that it's not arbitrary, that it's not happenstance. It isn't just fate, blind fate, that people we loved were taken from this world. That we know for sure is not the case. Does it help us? We're in the midst of grieving. We're hurting for ourselves, really. We're not hurting for the other person. The three Stronach siblings share their story of loss with Rabbi Elimelech Goldberg of Kids Kicking Cancer as the moderator. And I'm like kind of, I guess, denial because like I think everyone else around me probably realized it was so near the end because she was really kind of out of it already. And like, I was just, no, I'll see you tomorrow. And I, and I didn't. And I'm happy I said goodbye, but it wasn't like a real goodbye because I thought I was seeing you the next day. So I still feel like a hole my heart. I should have just said goodbye harder. And yeah, I mean, be, yeah, between like just losing another sibling I was like this is not happening I, I couldn't believe what my was being after this is not happening and another sibling of course anyway I lost my father that's another story it was just like too much for me it was so much for me but the good thing I think is that I like do not stop crying even now how many however many years later and I think like Marion told me it's always good to cry so that at least I do that I for sure grieve a lot even now I think I'm so I think it's good yeah like it's just it's just like a horrible tragedy and like I'll never get over it until Mashiach comes and we'll all be reunited, maybe very soon. Amen. Amen. That's a beautiful sentiment and thought, but it's the nature of grief. You know, the, we can understand it all. The word for a mourner, avel, is the same as aval, but you never really feel that emptiness inside of your heart, especially for a sibling. And that doesn't haunt us that more than in many ways helps elevate us, knowing that we're connected between this world and the next. And so definitely it's an important message for others. And Naomi, so we, we just talked about you know, losing dad and right on the, the heels of that, Esti's death, experience again, then and now, and, and how you think of it. How does it kind of merge together in your thoughts and feelings? So before I say anything about SD, I just wanted to say something, one more thing about Husky. Sure. I don't know if it has to do with what you were saying with like the connection protective thing, but I just know that anytime, like I work in a doctor's office and I see a lot of twin babies that come in or even just like someone who I work with actually is a twin. I don't know. Anytime anyone in the conversation of twins comes up, like I feel this like need to just, I don't always say that, oh, I'm a twin. Cause then, cause then I feel like I have to say that he died and I'm always not in the mood of saying that, but 
I'll always say twins run in my family. I'll say, oh yeah, and both my sisters have tw- twins. Like, yeah, one has twin boys and one has twin girls and both identical. And my, my father sisters have tw- two sets. Of- like, I feel the need to like always say how everywhere you turn in my family, there are twins. Sometimes I'll talk about myself. That just depends on my mood at the moment, you know? So I don't know. I don't know if that has to do to just like, because I guess because my twin died. I don't know. I just like wanted to say that. <laughs> That, you know that they, we are so affected by our past and the connections, and we don't always understand what clicks and what triggers that, and what kind of brings up feelings. But those feelings are so part and parcel of what allows us to be great and not to be afraid of them. So sometimes we'll keep the wall open. Sometimes we'll open up the door of that wall but it goes back and forth and it's not like a straight trajectory. So dad died and now, now Esther, your second sibling and the feeling then and now and how it affects you. Oh gosh. Can you help me? <laughs> okay. Talk about then. What was your relationship like with Esty then? So Esty was like really like eight years older than me. And I think that's like a lot of years. You know, I just actually remember when my father died. So I sat down next to Esty in the, like that family room over there. And I was, I was 25 then. I was 14 and I think I was like 25 or 26, something when I found that. And I sat down next, next to Esty and Esty's like, she said to me, oh, no, you're all 25 and you're sitting to me for the second time. So she was like, what, 30, I don't know, three, maybe? No. Mm-hmm. Right. I'll- Something like that. She's eight, whatever, 30s in her low 30s. And I was like, Esty, like being 32 or 33 and sitting shipping for the second time is not, is that's also like crazy, you know? <laughs> so she was just like feeling all, whatever. It was just like very sad. But, but anyway, but Esty was such a like fun, like she was just like so much fun. Like I remember when, when she was, uh, it was on Sukkis and only me and we were there, only my family, like me and my she and whatever. And we're sitting as an unsick, and I think she was already sick, and my mother was already sick, and like everybody was sick. But like, yeah, we are in Detroit. You're saying in Detroit, only me and my she. We were only ones there that year. I don't know why. And we were, Esty was sitting in the sukkah, and she was just like laughing and being so funny. We still talk about it, me and my she. How like we just we just couldn't stop laughing. She was being so funny. She kept on bringing in jokes about like you know like oh we're cancer buddies. Dr. Norman Blumenthal is the director of trauma services at OHEL. Despite his tremendous popularity and experience in the field, he remains humble and is always eager to help. I remember when during this course I gave at YU, I, we invited a parent who lost a child to suicide. And the guys, as future rabbis, asked her, is there anything from the Torah that gives you strength? And she said something so beautiful and meaningful. She said, I like the voracious. Because the story of the Avos and the Imahos, because they weren't superhuman people. They didn't move mountains. They didn't walk on water. They had hardships. They had struggles. Now, how they dealt with them is what made them great people. But their lives weren't a cakewalk. And they modeled for us that kind of resilience. And their manner and fashion in which they handled these challenges has become the, 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 the standard bearer for all of us for generations. So transmitting trauma to children, if it's in that context of that lesson, in the context of instilling resilience, is something very positive, and children shouldn't necessarily be insulated. If you as the parent are still in the throes of the trauma, 
and it's owning you and it's controlling you and you're imparting that desperateness then it's home. one more example you know, every tragedy had its theme so it's very interesting i mean if you remember the sassoon fire it's about five six years ago now the fire was seven out of eight children perished the most common question we got asked at oho when we were into doing our interventions were can i cry in front of my children can i cry in front of my talmidim and the answer we gave and i think it's relevant to what we're talking about here is you can cry you can't shriek and scream and tear your hair out that's scary if you're talking about this in tears rodan sheik that's a that's a wonderful example of just being human right and you you certainly can do that but that's a contained crying not an out of control crying so if an adult is doing the out of control crying then the child like has a traumatic reaction to their traumatic reaction or to what yeah. they're reacting to or to both trauma, trauma and fear are very contagious for the reasons i gave before it was nice. in the good old days when we had marauders and wars constantly you know and you know when you were guarding the walls of your walled city and the bad guys were coming your ability to mobilize the city to get the city scared so that they would mobilize and defend themselves was survival so our capacity to impart fear is essential to our survival but again not panic or out of control fear Mrs. Khani Shaim Brand founded the women's magazine Uplift following the death of her mother Eileen Shmasa one thing that really came across to me was how death is t- treated like shock or not shock and i thought that was a very big subject and i think it's also something that you yourself were grappling with was why people feel that if somebody dies shockingly it's harder to get over what what what's the difference of the pain there's no difference in pain we all feel the same loss whatever the thing is and that really came across that you were you know having a question about that because i i noticed you asked a few of them how do how do you feel about it now after all the question so i think i'm starting to understand that the reason that shock is worse now it's not for a layman to say oh shocking it's so much worse no you have no idea <laughs> for like yeah yeah therapists and the professionals right, yeah. <laughs> i'm starting to understand that the processing it really does make a difference like the pain of the loss is still the same but coming to terms with the loss is harder when it's so shocking um because you just your body just i guess just doesn't your mind really doesn't have time to know that this is happening starting to understand that that really like that it's a real thing again my personal experience i don't know why my father died very suddenly and I just don't think that it, the pain was any worse. I just don't think so. But on the other hand, I'm so grateful that he died right after Pesach. And I had just spent like a really, really, really nice Pesach with him. And I think that really just kind of helped with the pain being Shocking. less, but something. <laughs> no, it's interesting because I actually, my mother's death was very shocking. It really was a shock. She was with, she was having a conversation and she just, it, it, there's no other way of saying it. But in the books, they would say she dropped dead. You know what I mean? That was how uh, it was. She right. said goodbye, and then she went. And that was it. My father we will always have that. And we all have that. But it doesn't make me worse than somebody who, in a way, I'm thankful sometimes for what happened. Because I'm thankful that she didn't go through hell. She didn't go through a very long 
sickness. And she, you know, I'm thankful for that. I'm thankful that she was just as beautiful when she was Nifta than her whole life. She didn't have to suffer anything. And all I remember from her is just, you know, a very vibrant person. So for me, I'm thankful for that. Mm. I'm also in shock because I miss her. But you miss your mother just as much as... As much. That's the same. Right. <laughs> you see, that's when I don't... I, I, I really understood that question because it is a... Everyone said to me when, when my mother died, you're going to have three years. You're not going to get over it. It's going to be very, very difficult because it's shocking. And then your whole system and the doctor even said, you're not well because it's shocking. And it was everything was blamed on the shock. Right. It's not true. It was because I lost my mother and you lost your sister, your, your brother, your mother, your right. you know? Right, exactly. It's the pain of loss and that's just what it yeah. is. Yeah, and that's it. That's it. Rabbi Moshe Taub is the rabbi of Young Israel of Havlaswood and a popular author and speaker. So what, what happens when people come to you as a rabbi and say, why did this happen? And how could Hashem do this? And he was so good and you know, you know, the question of, you know, why good people die, et cetera, et cetera. What do you answer to such types of questions? You know, uh, I don't have an answer. I'm, I'm not here to say that I have an answer, but I could just tell you what I do tell them. And that is, first of all, we're not Christians. We're not Muslims. We don't have a promise of perfection if we do everything right. Parashas are full of clothes. So you can't question the Torah. The Torah made this very clear that bad things are going to happen in Golis. So it, it, it's not a denial of a promise. So that right away, take that away. It's not a question of the Torah condition. Now you could ask, why did Hashem promise that Gullus would be like this? That's the, probably the proper way to ask the question. Now, of course, you know, they can ask whatever they want. You don't question a mother and a father who's crying over a child. But for the listeners, they need to be aware. The proper question is, why did Hashem make Gullus like this? Or why did Hashem promise us 3,000 years ago that Gullots would be like this? So that really puts the question already into a new framework. And then I say, and I actually wrote this in the article, I don't have an answer. And I, I say this story from the Baal Shem Tov, where a woman, she comes to the Baal Shem Tov and she says, my husband died. My child was diagnosed with cancer. The one job I had is gone. Our house burnt down. I mean, tzara after tzara after tzara. And she says, farvos revos, why is this happening my holy teacher, why? And he said, he starts to cry at Al Shemtim and he looks up to the Himmel, looks up to Shemai, and he says, Abishta, Father in heaven, Zagmir Nisht Afarvas, you don't need to give me an answer. Just promise me there is an answer. And that's what I tell them. I say, we have to believe that there is an answer. The answer, we don't know. Mrs. Shandel Symes is the author of The Ruling Rabbi, in which she tells the story of her husband who became a paraplegic in a terrible accident and passed away several years later. And they kept asking me about Abba. Where's Abba? Is Abba okay? Is Abba going to die? And I'm like, why would Abba die? And they're like, but is Abba going to die? I'm like, why? I mean, like I was talking to him. You were talking to him. I'm talking to you. I'm talking to him. Like he's just as alive as the rest of us. Like what? And they didn't believe me. And I kept asking for information about my husband. I kept talking to the nurses, like, What's going on? And they can't. So say, what did what other part like your whole memory came back? Like what what happened to that? How come you forgot that you were pregnant? I was in shock. My my mind just shut down. My mind just shut down. But I slowly it came back. By the time I got to the hospital, I remembered very clearly that I was. Oh, so it was like a okay. 
but that was like an immediate, like I didn't have a concussion or anything. I didn't, not, you know, like it was just like within the initial moments of the accident, like I didn't even remember like the car turning over, the car spinning. There's just, I think what, I mean, shock, I think is like, you know, Hashem's way of the body just not having to process too much at one time. So it like cut, it just shuts down certain things that are just too much. Right. I need to, you know, deal with and just deal with like what's most important right then, I guess. So finally, one of the nurses said, okay, yeah, we have some news for you about your husband. I said, okay, what is it? And they said he has a spinal cord injury. And at that point, I didn't know very much about spinal cord injury. I, I knew that it meant that there would be a problem with walking. I didn't know everything else that entails. So I looked at her and I said, can he walk? And she looked down at the floor and she hesitated. She shook her head and she said, no, no, he can't walk. And at that point, even if I was, you know, naively unaware of everything that paralysis entails, that was still big enough that my husband would never walk again. And you like believed her. You weren't. You didn't go into denial about like, no. What do you mean? He's going to get better. Of course, temporary. You just accepted it. No, I think at that point, she, I didn't know enough. Like she just knew he had a spinal cord injury and he couldn't walk. And that's all. You know, I didn't. I hadn't seen him yet. I hadn't spoken to any of his doctors yet. I was in Watertown. Meantime, he was being airlifted. They got a helicopter. To oh wow! Fly. They had to use the jaws of life, which is like a huge crane, like a huge metal machine to saw the, the car in half. Wow. They wow. Out of the car. And especially since he, that he couldn't move, they had to make sure that, you know, they didn't cause a spinal cord injury if there already was one, not to make it any worse if there was one. So he was airlifted by helicopter to Syracuse, practically back where we came from, because they have a trauma center. Wow. So I didn't know to question anything yet. You know, that wasn't until I left. They were keeping me in Watertown until they knew where my husband was going and what the situation was. And then I ended up getting transferred down to Syracuse. so I could be in an attached hospital to where he was. So he was in the Syracuse Upstate University Trauma Center. And I was in Krause Hospital, which specializes in neonatal care because they were afraid that I was going to go into premature labor and have a go. When I asked her and she told me that he couldn't walk. And at that point, I had two choices to make and I had to decide. Choice number one seemed to be my best option. Just completely shut down, be in denial, like you said. (laughs) It's never happened and go to sleep, put the pillow over my head, put the blanket over my head for a very long time and wake up when it was all over. Right. Very, very tempting, actually. Yes, I'm sure. On the other hand, I had seven kids on the other side of the screen in the ER waiting for me, a son at home and an unborn. And I felt like I didn't have that luxury (laughs) of shutting down and saying goodbye to it all because I had kids who were counting on me. Right. Somebody needed to be there for them. And if it wasn't going to be my husband and I didn't know what that meant or what he could be able to do or what function, at least temporarily, it had to be me. Mrs. Risa Rotman is the author of Terror and Amuna in Harnof. 
in which she shares her family's story after her husband was mortally injured in the Harnoff Tower attack. Let's talk about guilt, because that's always a big thing. No matter what's going on in a person's life, when someone dies, almost always people feel guilt. And I was just wondering, I mean, I know also you you did definitely wrote about it in your book, but again, this is talking for all those that are listening. Like, what's the, how did you like work out the not feeling the guilt of, you know, I guess staying in the present when you're with your husband, you're with your husband, when you're with your kids, you're with your, you're with your kids. And there's no feeling guilty that, oh, I really should be in the other place. I never had guilt. No one second of guilt. Nothing. Not, it never even entered my head. I was That's focused amazing. that, that I was focused that every tough key that I had, even when I went to an exercise class, every tough key that I had was where I was supposed to be at that moment. If I think it was just a matter of accepting the situation for what it was. This is where I am. You know, when I did put in place everything I could to make sure that my husband was well taken care of, but I wasn't the one who was going to make sure that like it didn't have to all be done by me. And I put into place that my kids could be taken care of as well as I could as well. And I, I think that I, I'm not going to, I'm going to say something a little bit not nice, but I think guilt is really like a little bit of an ego trip. Like if you're feeling guilty, then it means that you, you could control the situation. And I knew that I had no control over the situation. I could only do the best I could. Is that like your nature or is that something you had to work on? Because it's amazing. Do I never feel guilt? Look, I have an ego and I have I have work on anger. I think though, I think unfortunately, the fortunate side is I think that when we're in the big things, I see Hashem very clearly. And in the stupid things, like if my kids insult me or something, I mean, I'm better about this now. I'm a little more mature now than maybe when I was a younger mother, but in the stupid things or somebody else insults me, I could still get like, how could they do that? And how could this be? And then I can get bogged down in stupid, petty things. I think in the big things, I see a shem. And then the little things I get lost in how, because they're so stupid. Like they're right. so stupid. And they hit the ego. So. so I would say like, also when my son passed away, there was nothing. My husband and I said, we wrote on his Levi sign, Hashem no ten, Hashem no lokech. And it was like unquestioned. Mrs. Sarah Kornblit spent years working in palliative care. When her own special needs child was born, she became the founder of the Thriving Working Mom. And so the social worker's role there is just helping them adjust to a diagnosis, um, deal with the anxiety, depression, life changes, job changes, so many different things. And so I really ended up starting my career in the medical environment and also with a high mortality population. So like already the dialysis patients I was working with, there was a high mortality rate. And so I was also, you know, talking a lot about advanced directives and end of life wishes and like having those kinds of conversations with my patients. So, so that, that's how I started. So I did that for four years. You would bring up straight, like, uh, you know, about medical advanced directives and everything. Like you, you weren't like too scared to bring it up. So I definitely was at first because it's so scary and like people could get mad, you know? Right. Are are you telling me I'm dying? Right. (laughs) (laughs) Just hearing you, my heart is like pounding. Like, how do you say that? (laughs) Yeah. So like, I, I, you know, there was like some months, the nurse did the education, some months, dietitian. 
Mrs. Haile Rothstein devoted herself to caring for her elderly mother who suffered from dementia. So hard. I, I just like, you know, I said this in the past, how I watched my you know own grandparents deteriorate and watching my aunts and uncles take care of them. And part of me is like, oh my gosh, I, I can't even imagine. I, I just can't even imagine. The other part of me is like, but it's probably still better that way than the way I did it when my parents were so young. They never needed a real caretaker. My mother, Allah Shalom, used to say, no one gave me a choice. You didn't have a choice and I didn't have a choice. Hashem right. chooses for us, you know? Right. And maybe it's better that way because I don't know what we would choose and and no, nobody would want to choose. Right. I, I guess that's a good point. <laughs> it's not good my way. It's not good your way. And Hashem gives us whatever way is supposed to be for us. So how long was your mother? Like, did she not know you until she was Nifter? About a year and a half. She didn't know who I was anymore. And I would say for anybody listening that this might be one point that people can take away. If you are visiting with someone who has dementia, it's, in my mind anyway, unkind to say, do you remember me? Do you know my name? Because they very well may not. And that's embarrassing. That's an embarrassing question. It would be embarrassing for me Baruch Hashem, hopefully I'm still very well. And if somebody would walk over to me and say, do you remember me? Do you remember my name? And if I don't remember, you're uncomfortable. Right. But if a person who really can't remember, why not come in and say, hi, I'm Chayalea. It's so nice to see you again. I haven't seen you in a while. Why? Just introduce yourself. Say your name. You don't need to test anyone. <laughs> they right. can't pass the test. And, and it's okay. You know that they're not well, if you know that they're not well. There's no reason to show everybody that they're that they're not well. But once by the time by the time my mother already didn't know me, and she hadn't known my name for quite a while already, someone said to me, sorry, someone said to her, Do you know who that is? And they pointed to me. And I just stood there like a stone. I thought. It was so painful for me that my mother didn't know my name. It really was very painful. And my mother sat and she stared at me for a minute. And she said, well, I don't know her name, but she's in charge. Are you serious? <laughs> it was very cute. It was very sweet. And I felt better. <laughs> and my Pesach clone is a renowned speaker, author, and male. It is truly such an honor. I thank you so much, Mrs. Ribiat, for inviting me. I know that you work with the Hebra Lunde Mishnah, and uh, that is, of course, run by Rabbi Moshe Hakins. And um, I just want to say to all of us, we're speaking about a very painful but important topic of loss and grief and how to confront it and how to react to it. And one of the things that the Hebra Lunde Mishnah do is that they have a program where they will learn Mishnayas for those people never who have passed away. And we know that many times when we go to be Menachem someone, we see lists of Mishnayas, but sometimes they all can't be filled. And so Hevra Lomde Mishnah takes care of that through Rabbi Hakins. I just want to give their number. I'm going to repeat it twice. 732-364-7029. Again, 732-364-7029. 
I also want to thank TorahAnytime.com and my dear friend Rachman Segev, who was in my home here filming so that literally this program will be able to be seen all around the world. To me, it is so interesting that Mrs. Riviat and I, for more than 30 years, shared the most wonderful, kind, caring relative. Let me explain. When I was a little boy, I had an aunt that I loved. She was so special. Her name to me was Tante Fagi Ackerman. Rabbi Avram Pressburger was a young bacher when he was pulled out from Seder and told to go home, ultimately finding out that his father had passed away. Did you see a difference in the way you and your siblings grieved? Yeah, so very much so, right away. So it happened, like I mentioned, it was in January. I was learning in Avatani Shiva and in general, now Tanya Shivas, we would come home from off Shabbos once every four weeks. But for the immediate time after my father passed away, I came home for Shabbos every week. I didn't even think there was any other way to go about it. Like, of course, I had to spend time with my family. I wasn't going to miss Yeshiva like <laughs> forever. Obviously, I was going to go back and you know try to get back to daily, day, you know, day-to-day functioning and, and living. But for Shabbos, it was not a question that I was going to go back. And I, the, the brother that I mentioned all the way back in the beginning, who that Monday before experienced some sort of incident in the yeshiva, he maybe the first week went back and then went back home, stayed home for Shabbos, and afterwards he stayed in yeshiva. And I just, I couldn't fathom the man, I couldn't understand it. And I, I probably mentioned it to him, or if not to him, then to my mother and my other siblings, like, how could it be? He's abandoning us at this time. And around, I don't remember how how long after my father passed away, but somebody came over to me in yeshiva. He was married and he said, hi, Shalom Aleichem. I hadn't really met him before because the Kyle and the Bishmajers were separate. There was some interaction, but you know, it was possible for me, even though I knew most probably everybody in yeshiva, but it was possible for me not to have any interaction with somebody who was married. So he said, hi, and he introduced himself and he said, I just want to say hello. I heard obviously what happened to you and your father. And I just want to let you know that I went through something similar I was in 12th grade and my father passed away. He said, and this is like a lesson for all. Um, he said, it's like, it's okay if you don't want to talk to me, I can just walk away right now. But if you want to talk to me, like I'm here for you, you know? So I very much appreciated that approach because not everybody who went through something similar or what they think was similar, like did behavior act like that. They People think they had it coming to them just because of a similar experience. So I very much appreciated that. And we ended up talking and I don't remember like everything about the conversation. One of the things he said, he said, I'm one of 10 children. So my family was a little bit smaller, seven kind of hard, but he said that every single one of us grieved differently. And it was like a light bulb moment for me. I was like, wow, um, like, thank you so much for telling me that because I just had didn't, I didn't even like entertain the idea that it's possible for people to grieve differently. Right. And I don't blame myself at all, you know, but at the end of the day, it was just something that like it was eye opening to me and very much like allowed me to then accept my brother and the way he was, you know, going to grieve. And he felt, you know, what was better for him to stay in Yeshiva during those weeks, even though obviously I wanted him home and I was able to, you know, come to terms with that. Another thing that came up with a different grieving was Pesach, which was at that point a couple of months, a few months, because there had been a leap year that year or two leap year. So it was an extra month of Adar. So it was already like three months or so after my father passed away when Pesach was coming. And at that point, I just didn't feel ready to be home um, either alone or together with my married sister or my brother-in-law. I just felt like it was the motion, you know, the pain was too much. My father, like he always led to stay there. 
very, I don't know, royally. <laughs> I don't know. He, he, it was something that I, you know, remember very much from my childhood, my father running the Seder, and I very much enjoyed that, you know, growing up. And I just wasn't ready to be at home with someone, you know, it just, I felt it was going to be too much. So I really wanted to go away. Now, my sisters, my two single sisters, the one right on top of me, the one under me, they didn't want to go away. They, they said, we don't want to feel like we're Yusomas. Mrs. Miriam Piat is the author of I Wish Someone Would Have Told Me, a book for teens that have lost a parent. And I Wish Someone Would Have Told My Friends, a booklet for friends of teens that lost a parent. Imagine if your friend turns to you and says, I'm so jealous. I'm just so jealous. I mean, every time I look out of my window on Shabbos and I see men, I see fathers walking into their house after Shul, I'm jealous of every single family that has a father to say Kiddush at the Shabbos table. Every single time I see a mother and a, a daughter shopping together, I feel, again, you know, we have, many of us have that personality of wanting to be like a fixer man. It's like, oh my gosh, I'm going to fix this up. You're jealous? Okay, no, I'm going to talk to you. I'm going to tell you how terrible jealousy is. I'm going to tell you how we can't be jealous. But that's not what she wants to hear right now. Even though you might think you have all the right answers, right? We learned since we're four years old. Are you, are you jealous of someone that has glasses? No, because you don't need glasses. Everyone has exactly what they need. But your friend is really jealous right now. And like any emotions at any time in life, not just when you're a kid, but always, when an emotion comes, if you don't want that feeling, by trying to push it away, oh, 100% assurance that it's staying 100% fully. If you want to get rid of an emotion, you have to like accept it. Okay, so now I'm jealous. Now I'm angry. Now I'm sad. Hi, Josie. You want to stay by me for a little bit? Okay, you could. That's really how we have to, that's one of the ways that we help ourselves get rid of emotions. So if you're going to start telling your friend how terrible it is that, that she's jealous and she really shouldn't feel jealous and she has the exact package that she's supposed to have and she is so strong and she's such an amazing person, you're going to turn her off. You're not going to be someone that she's going to want to talk to. So again, it's just about validating. Of course you feel jealous. How can you not feel jealous? It only makes sense you feel jealous. I probably would also feel jealous. Who wants to not have a mother or not have a father? Of course we're jealous of people that do have both parents. I just want to take a minute to add that sometimes like these types of conversations could feel so huge to, to anyone, but especially to a high school girl that never really you know had to deal with these types of things. And it's really, really okay to go get yourself help for you to speak to a teacher or your parent or I don't know, whoever you feel like is a person that could help you out. Because I'm going to explain to you what I mean. Like if you go running to your teacher or principal or whatever, whoever is in the school these days, that people that girls talk to and you say, and you tell them, you know, so-and-so she really needs help. I mean, you should hear the way she's talking. She's angry. She's jealous. She cries every minute. She, you know, she changes emotions every second. I don't do this. I spoke to a lot of girls. Most girls that I spoke to said to me, I don't want to be singled out. I don't want any teacher to come to me and pull me out and try to talk to me and try to be my savior and try to help me. So although there may be those few girls that do want it, it seems like most people don't. And if a girl is not ready to get themselves help, then even if the teacher calls her out and even if the teacher tries to call, you know, speak to her, chances are she won't really make any changes. She won't open up to the teacher because she's not interested. And if she could trace it back that you went and you spoke to the teacher, that can make her feel very resentful towards you. But what you could do is you could get yourself help how to handle these situations what to say, how to make proper boundaries. Just because your friend wants to talk to you every night for four hours straight doesn't mean that you have to. It doesn't mean that you're a bad friend by saying, look, I really have to go now. I just can't be on the phone anymore tonight. It's okay for you to learn how to handle it. And when you learn how to handle these types of conversations, besides that you're helping yourself, 
you're really also helping your friend because you're making yourself into a better person to be able to really be a safe person for her to share with you. Mrs. Sarifka Cohen lost her mother at the age of nine. She's the dynamic founder of Links, an organization for children that lost a parent. She was companioning the griever. She was just being there alongside me and saying, I'm hanging out in the same grief zone that you're in. I know it's been a hard week for you and I want you to know I'm there. And it was like a piece of her heart in that, in that sense. And it meant a lot. Right. right. I'm trying to think if I would like appreciate such a thing like yes and no, because the other part that we didn't talk about is really being vulnerable with it. And sometimes like, like it almost forces vulnerability and I don't want to be vulnerable. So therefore don't send me anything even though I told you it's a hard week, but now just forget that I said it because I'm sort of forgetting about it. Does that make sense? It makes a lot of sense. And I'm going to tell you, you know, some of my unconventional thoughts on this. So first of all, you know, just in general, people ask me all the time, like, what could I do for a griever? Right. And I kind of took the five, the concept of the five love languages, which some people may be familiar with, which is words of affirmation, quality time, gifts, acts of service, physical touch. And the idea was I translated that as being a language that people appreciate on, across the board, right? So if somebody's making a simcha, if somebody's making a bar mitzvah, there'll be those who appreciate the people who send the food and send the chocolates and send me gifts and send me stuff, right? That, that's who they are. Then there's somebody who says, oh my gosh, I'll go shopping with you for your dress. I'll be there to give you the opinion. I'll sit with you. We'll go out for coffee together. That's a quality time person. Great. Or a little bit of acts of service of, can I do some errands for you? And they feel so loved, right? And as a person who needs everybody to walk into their simcha and they give them a big beer hug and stuff, right? And then that, that those are those people. And then you get the ones who just consistently need, you know, their friends to come in and say how beautiful the setup is and how beautiful they look. That's the words of affirmation, right? So everything plays out differently. Now, what happens if my friend is the one who needs the chocolates and the gifts and whatever it is, right? And I walk in and I praise her dress and everything like that. Then she feels like I... You know, obviously I don't mean enough to her because if I meant enough to her, she'd have sent me something. Why? Because right. that's her need versus what you're, what you're giving, right? And the same comes for grief. I think that many of us tend to treat a griever in the way we would like to be treated, right? So if I wanted suppers sent for two weeks after, then I will send somebody else supper, right? That's the way our heads tend to go. Right. Versus somebody who says, I would want somebody to give me space. So I'm going to give the next person space, right? Everybody can do. And the idea is really to try to, if there's a friendship, to try to get to know what makes the other person tick in general, right? What is it that this person appreciates when people do for her? That will show up when she's making, or he is making a simcha. That will show up when this person is unfortunately dealing with any painful situation in their life. And it doesn't only have to be loss, right? Mrs. Nahama Abigail Brilovsky never knew her father as her mother was pregnant with her when he died. I could say it, but you don't tell me, oh, it's such a gift to be an old Right. <laughs> right. Please don't ever say that. <laughs> so you mentioned that you had a lot of expectations. So that you have to like really do who knows what in this world because you're, you don't have your father. You have to make him proud or whatever. But my question is, is that did those expectations start when you were a young girl or again, only after you were 30 years old and you realized that you really were an orphan, uh, are an orphan? Miriam, you are asking such a good question. My father was a maggot Already before he was married, he was teaching Torah in Baltimore. And when he was Nifter, he was a 10th grade maggot share mm. in Narendra. And he had Tamidim who were left crying and, you know, 
really mourning the loss. And he was supposed, from what I hear, he was a brilliant budding Talmud Chacham. My grandfather used to always say, oh, he would have been a Rosh Yeshiva. I didn't even know what it meant. I, I didn't even know what he was talking. Like, I didn't know what it meant, especially when I was younger. What's a Rosh Yeshiva right. and who cares? Like, right. <laughs> you know, when you're younger, it's like, I don't know. Like, I kept thinking, would I have liked to be the daughter of a Rosh Yeshiva? I don't know. Because I, I, now I wasn't, you know. So my stepfather's a very chashiva Talmud Chacham, but we weren't, you know, he didn't run a Yeshiva. But anyway, what I what I would say is when my mother was expecting, of course, there was like a, I'm sure everyone was like waiting for the boy to be right. born. To bear his name, and lo and behold, in the day of the sonogram. And your mother was probably so happy that it was a girl and she didn't have to deal with the pain or whatever of having a son named after her husband. <laughs> I don't even know. I never asked her if she was disappointed or elated. I must say to her credit, I didn't feel any disappointment. But could you imagine the world that when they heard it was a girl <laughs> and not the like boy to carry on. And not only that, but my father did not leave a son. My sister is a sister and it's two girls. So there was like a little bit, I'm sure there were high expectations. Mrs. Rochie Rosenfeld lost her parents and mother-in-law in quick succession. When you ran the support groups, was there something in particular that you found women wanted the most? So first of all, I wanted to give a shout out for the concept of support groups. I remember coming home from our group sometimes telling my husband, you know, everyone should have a support group for something or another. Just coming under one roof, sitting around the room with people who have been through your same life experience. Now, no two experiences are the same. They all have their unique differences. Everybody's emotional and physical makeup, physiological makeup is different in the way they handle pain, grief, stress, etc. But no matter how different the experiences were, there were many things that we were all able to relate to. Everyone in the room at least was able to shake their head and say, I understand, I get it. Right. Even if it wasn't their exact experience, they were able to get it. And that's the power of the group and that's the beauty of the group. And so we would start it off as we try to bring something positive about, like to remember about our parents, if it was Arab Pesach, we went around the table and saying, can you share two happy memories of your, you know, your parents around Pesach. So we'd start with that. So at least we put, a, we put a positive spin on it. And then we'd usually bring in an article or something to start a conversation, but the conversation always went, there was always something going on. But what I found was the most valuable is everyone wants to know if they're normal. Like one woman said, she, start, she tries to read now during the year. And she can't, she's reading the same paragraph over and over again. Like she can't think, she can't concentrate. Is that normal? And when everybody shakes hands and says, yes, 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 I couldn't, I used to forget things. I was so forgetful. You know, yeah, grief is a real thing. It's not an imaginary thing. It's real. And there are certain, as we're going to speak soon, there are certain patterns to grief. And so just getting that validation and that understanding. Tali Ariaf is a therapist who deals with many children from divorced home. She shares what an experience can look like when a parent of divorce dies. So a child hears these messages and then his mother dies. 
So, well, in that setting where the parents were co-parenting well, it would be more similar to a standard grief. Really? It would be more similar. You would still have quite a bit of the difficulty. Like, for example, that, you know, in a, in a different situation and the differences in my situation are highlighted. Also, when a kid of divorce loses their parent, it becomes very obvious to all their peers. Some kids are very, very sensitive about their, you know, not wanting their peers to know what's going on, but it all becomes very obvious. And even the kids who are very confident and happy to share don't like the way that they're different on display for everyone who comes to be Menachem Abel. That's very uncomfortable. I think that in an ideal situation where they were co-parenting, well, you're still going to have some elements of challenge from the divorce, but you're not going to have the same level of trauma as a traumatic divorce by any means. Mm -hmm. Meaning you'll still have the attachment wounds that maybe there was some level of loss of the parent, loss of stability, but you won't have anything compared to like where there was abandonment, where they didn't have much of a relationship with one parent, where there was a lot of tension between the parents and fighting. Those will be much more complex grief process. What about, we talked about this in the book, that, you know, they didn't have a relationship with their parent and they had the stigma of being divorced and now the parent died and it's like, yay, now I could just be an orphan. That's much more okay. (laughs) Yeah. Some people do have a certain sense of relief that like this mess was kind of unmessed. It was cleaned up, not in a good way, but it was cleaned up. What happens like when they grow up then? Do they feel guilty that they were happy when their parent died? I don't think anyone's happy when their parents die. I think that, you know, people, most people have a range of emotions at any time. Right. And there can be some relief without being happy. I think happy is too strong a word. I think there may be a sense of relief or of some closure. But I don't think that, look, most kids of many kids of divorce grapple very much with guilt. And I think it's very important any therapist or person who's working with divorce or who is parenting a child of divorce or is married to a child of divorce to be very clear that messy emotions are okay. You have just listened to an episode by Mrs. Miriam Ribiet. For more episodes or for additional information about future episodes, visit our website at www.chevralomdemishna.org or email mribiet at chevralomdemishna.org. To submit questions or comments for this speaker, to suggest another speaker who might be Mechazek Others, or to sponsor a podcast, visit chevralomdemishna.org forward slash podcast.